And would you pray together with me? Gracious Heavenly Father, as we come, we open our hearts before you in worship. We, we know that you inhabit the worship of your people, and so, Lord, you are here. And, and, Lord, as our hearts are open, Lord, we are obedient to you and to your way and to your presence. I pray that, Lord, your presence would come to us like the balm of Gilead, that, Lord, not only would you straighten out the wrinkles in our lives, but, Lord, you might be able to fill us with that sense of encouragement and grace and healing and hope, those sort of things, Lord, that strengthen us, that, Lord, give confidence to us to be able to live lives of faith, to be able to step out as people of the kingdom, sons and daughters of God, men and women of kingdom purpose. This I pray in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Before I begin, I just wanted to also add my greeting uh, to uh, Dr. Marv uh, Dewey. It's good to see you uh, once again. Uh, he was the president, uh, former president of the, uh, our school in Edmonton and uh, years ago. I mean, this is years ago. Uh, I was on the executive council, and you were always so kind and so gracious to me. And uh, you, you won my heart in that time, and it's good to see you again my good friend. Several years ago, <clears throat> I was invited to join a group of pastors by, Focus, or by um, uh, uh, Insight for Living, the uh, Chuck Swindoll group, to, to participate in a focus group uh, for their counseling network. And the theme of our study uh, that they were having working through us was the issue of stress. And, and, and we were actually led by a psychologist who joined us, and he began the sessions by ring, uh, reading out a string of statistics. And here are the statistics he gave. I went back to my notes. In one year across North America, $40 billion was lost to industry due to premature stress-related deaths. $30 billion uh, was lost annually to absenteeism and another $30 billion to alcoholism and a final $30 billion was lost to heart disease, all three of those related to stress. And then he laid more statistics on us. He said that one-fifth of the population suffers from migraines and tension-related illnesses, that every year over 45 tons, 45,000, I'm sorry, 45,000 tons of Tylenol are consumed, and over 30 billion doses of tranquilizers are being popped among us. Now, I got to tell you, just after the first 30 seconds of his presentation, I was ready for some Tylenol myself. You know, just to hear those things, and and, and I'm sitting in that focus group, and I'm finding my, my stomach is beginning to churn, my heart is beginning to pound, and my head is beginning to hurt. And I realize this is going to be a long day. Not too long ago, Time Magazine officially named anxiety as a national disease by saying this, not not merely the black statistics of murder, suicide, alcoholism, and disease betray anxiety, but almost any innocent everyday act, the cascade of physical and emotional effects betray that we are living with an epidemic of worry. It's an epidemic out there, folks. It's an epidemic. It's contagious. Stress, worry, anxiety, lions, tigers, and bears. Oh, my. You can feel it. Frank Meyer and Paul Minereth took it a step further when they wrote, they said, the anxious individual is characterized as hyper-alert, irritable, and fidgety. He may talk too much and too fast. Let me read that again. He may talk too much and too fast, uh, have difficulty sleeping, Concentration is impaired. Memory is poor. There may be an excessive perspiration. 
um, muscle tension, headaches, uh, quivering voice, <laughs> and abdominal pain, nausea, butterflies in the stomach, high blood pressure, rapid heartbeat, and fainting. Anxiety, they wrote, is the underlying cause of most psychiatric problems, the causes of neuroses, psychoses, and physio- uh, psychophysiological disorders. Did you get all of that? You taking notes? I should probably stop for a moment and ask then you the question, how are you doing with me so far? Okay? Anybody need Pepto-Bismol or Alka-Seltzer as we go? Look, no matter what you ever name you give to it, worry, care, burden, trouble, anxiety is, in fact, a very familiar companion to each and every one of us. It is a daily tormentor that we have come to know and expect somewhere during our day. Soren Kierkegaard said, no grand inquisitor has in readiness such terrible tortures as we face every day with anxiety. You and I know it by name, and every day as the pressure mounts, we lift our eyes to heaven and cry, please, dear Lord, what am I to do? How am I to live? How can I escape? Well, the fact is the Lord does have an answer to such a prayer. If I were to page through the scriptures, the words would just jump off the pages. In Psalm 23, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil. Why? Because thou art with me. Or in Philippians chapter 4, be anxious for nothing but in everything pray, and what happens? The peace of God which passes all understandings will keep your hearts in Christ Jesus. There are words of encouragement to be found, and this morning we will hear those words repeated again by our Lord Jesus Christ himself. So I'm going to ask you to turn with me in your Bibles as we continue in our studies in the Gospel of Luke to chapter 12. And there we find Jesus speaking to his disciples, interestingly enough, in the days before his own passion facing his own fears and anxieties and pain, instructing them to do the same, he speaks to his disciples and he says, Therefore I tell you, do not worry. Luke chapter 12, verse 22, Jesus said to his disciples, I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or about your body or what you will wear. Do not worry. Now, some of you may have it in your Bibles. You translate it as the word, do not be anxious. And the word itself carries a very colorful picture. It literally means to, to be dis- divided, distracted, and mentally torn into two. It's a great way to describe what happens to us when we do worry. It is like our brain is a piece of paper held by two monstrous hands that is being shredded into confetti, being torn to pieces. And in essence, Jesus is saying, stop the madness. (laughs) Stop the madness. And woven into his order is an assumption, what I have on your sermon outline, the assumption that there is freedom in a life that is committed to him. It doesn't need to be that way. It does not need to be that way for a disciple. It does not need to be that way for one whose life is defined by the kingdom of God. Please notice, he is talking to people who have thrown their lot in life 
to him. They are his disciples. They are committed. And one good reason for you to consider a commitment to Jesus Christ is that a commitment to Jesus Christ provides you all the potential to prevent anxiety and survive your worries. Jesus begins his warning here with a very simple word, therefore. And you know that old saw that is out there. Whenever you see the word therefore, you have to ask yourself, what's it there for? Uh, the New American Standard has, has it translated this, for this reason. That's what therefore means, for this reason. And Jesus gives a reasonable solution, a prescription, as it were, how to cope with anxiety. Now, you know that it really doesn't help to have somebody simply come up to you and say, don't worry, and not give you a reason. You know how, how, how frustrating it could be whenever you are in agony and have someone come up and pat you on the head and say, don't worry, be happy. Or some singer comes along and happy, just be happy. That doesn't help without a reason. You've got to have something more in order to be able to actually make it count. And Jesus says, therefore, for this reason, do not worry. And that little phrase, therefore, points right back to the last three words in verse 21. You have Luke chapter 12, look at verse 21, and you remember that, those three words from last week. Jesus left a question hanging in the air in verse 15. He said, of what does life consist? Asking the question, what gives life substance? What gives life meaning? What defines life? In verse 22, the answer comes out in, three, in, in these words, being rich toward God. That's the last three words of the verse, and 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 you you may remember that I said last week that you could actually spend a lifetime filling those three words with meaning. What does it mean to be rich toward God? Being rich toward God begins when you decide to belong to God with your commitment. And it sparkles as you choose to make heaven your home and you are determined then to make God the focus of your soul. For those who are rich toward God, there is a freedom. Listen, when life goes up for grabs and you're flailing about, trying to get a handle on things, the commitments that you have made with your life will determine, in fact, the freedom that you will find and the stability that you are able to possess. So from the very beginning, before we go any further, you have to make a decision to join this group to hear the words of Jesus. You must make a commitment to become a disciple of Jesus Christ for them to have any sort of impact in your life. And if it is that case, then the rest of it will then make sense. Therefore, being rich toward God, being a child of God, belonging as a disciple to the Lord Jesus Christ, therefore I tell you, he says, do not worry about your life, what you will eat, or about your body, what you will wear. Life now is more than just food and the body more than clothes. Now, that's a, that, that's a, that's a reality wake-up call. That, that might come as a cold splash of water across the face. It's reality. Worry tends to become a fixation, and you need to wake out. You need to snap out of it. 
Worry tends to become a fixation where our vision is, is now hel- suddenly held captive in suspense and you find yourself then beginning to ask questions like, am I going to make it? Will my dreams come true? Will I survive intact? In the passage last week, the mistaken goal of life that Jesus challenged was that life consisted of eating, drinking, and being merry. Here, it gets much more basic. Will, will I be able to survive the next few moments? Will I be able to take solids when they are over? Will I still have a shirt on my back? I don't know what causes you to worry, but I do know that something has to break that fixation. And here, Jesus takes us outside the box in order to be able to gain a different perspective, a new perspective, a kingdom perspective, and start looking at things from a different angle. Look at verse 24. It begins with the word consider. That that word appears again in verse 27. Consider. And that is a word of perspective. It literally means to look at anew, observe fully and thoroughly. And with that word, Jesus calls us to, to see things with a different dimension in our thinking. The first dimension, as I have it on your outline, is to see that worry is futile, the futility of anxiety. He punctures the illusion of worry by by saying first that it is irreverent. (laughs) Verse 24, read that with me. You can read it with me. Consider the ravens. They do not sow, nor do they reap. They do not have store uh, rooms or barns, and yet God feeds them. How much more valuable are you than birds? When I say that it is irreverent to worry, it is because in the moment we worry, we choose to forget God. And whatever it is that is causing us to worry has taken, taken on the mantle of divinity in our lives. It has replaced God on, on the throne that we seek to worship. And so our worry then becomes counterfeit worship, where we then begin to bow down before that deity, which is fearsome in nature. Look at the ravens, Jesus says. Now, you have to ask yourself the question, do you think they ever have a day when they don't believe in God? Do you think ravens ever have a moment where they just don't take it for granted that God exists? Where they question in their little bird brains the the existence of God? No. It's it's taken for granted and you and I are prone to forget. I, I know it sounds silly, and, but, but when you choose to worry, you, you run the danger of putting yourself up for adoption if you are a child of God. As if to say, I no longer want God as my Father or heaven as my home. I have chosen now to fix my eyes on something else or someone else in order to be fulfilled. That's not how you were created. So get a grip, Jesus says. You have value in the eyes of God. He is your heavenly Father. So so, so set the worry aside. Worry can be irreverent. It can also be, I have it in your outline, as being irrelevant. Look at verse 25. Who of you, by worrying, can add a single hour to his life? Since you cannot do this very little thing, why do you worry about the rest? Let me see if I can put this together. Worry is natural. Worrying, however, is futile. 
Worry is natural. It's, it's, our, it's our response to the threats in life and our ability to be able to recognize them and to take them seriously. We, worry is a natural thing. Worrying, however, it, it, it is futile. Worry is an innate response to a threat, and God has wired us with instincts for survival. You detect threats. Your adrenal glands begin to pump. You perk up. You organize a a, a defense to deal with danger. That's worry in its natural setting. But here, Jesus says, worrying is futile. You see, just worrying doesn't change a thing. It really only works in fiction. I remember as a kid, and, and I'm glad to have a little, at least a, a, an aged audience that is closer to my age here. I remember as a kid, TV was a brand new thing, and so I'm showing my age. And my mom and dad let my brother and I stay up one night to watch Peter Pan. How many of you remember seeing Mary Martin and Peter Pan? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I went back and saw a replay of that, and there were actually strings. She wasn't flying, which was real Real disillusionment, you know. But, but anyhow, it was all in black and white. Mary Martin the, played Peter Pan, and I can still remember that she flew on, on, on wires. It was magic. And, and Tinkerbell, <laughs> Tinkerbell was not some sort of Disney animation. Tinkerbell was actually, I think, somebody on the side of the stage with a flashlight just flickering this light, and, and some stagehand was moving it around. But for me, it was the first time I had ever actually seen an elf. You know, it was floating around. And, and in the story, Tinkerbell swallowed a glass of poison that was meant for Peter Pan, and, and the light that was Tinkerbell began to flicker as Tinker was fading away and beginning to die. And I can remember then uh, Peter Pan, you know, coming up in, in the camera, you know, looking right at me uh, at TV and was begging me to, to hope real hard, to hope real, real hard that maybe Tinkerbell would live, that Tinkerbell would only live if I, if I, if I believed real, real hard. And so I did. I, I worried and I worried and I worried real hard. And you know what? Tinkerbell began to shine again. She lived. It worked. It was a miracle. But you know what? That's the last time I've ever seen worry actually work. Praying helps. And I've seen God answer prayer. But worrying That's just prayer to a dead idol, and it don't mean a thing. That's the reality check that Jesus is giving here. The futility of worry. In verse 27, Jesus says it again. I've got something more for you. Consider something more to put in your mind. Consider adding a dimension to your perspective to add to your thoughts that will lift you out of the pain of this life. And then he says, as on your sermon outline, something about the satisfaction of life. Verse 27. Consider how the lilies grow. They do not labor or spin, and yet I tell you, even Solomon in all of his splendor was not dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? Look at the flowers. (laughs) It's a great time to be able to look at flowers this time of year, isn't it? Look at the flowers. There's a lesson to be learned, Jesus is saying. Basically, it's that under God's care, enough is enough. 
And enough, being enough, is enough to be beautiful. As I've studied this, I, I, I've read that you know, there are some scholars who say that, that this fear of clothing covers the impressions that we carry into the world of how we are perceived by others. But for whatever reason, we do, in fact, worry about our image, maybe even about our beauty. And so let me play with that one for just a moment. And in large part, it may be true. I've seen people torn over their self-image, and yet the most beautiful image they possess is the simplest one that was made by God, which may not necessarily be impressive in the face of the world. Let me tell you a secret. The most beautiful women in the world will never be seen on the cover of Glamour magazine. I'm thinking of someone like Corey Ten Boom or someone like Mother Teresa or a thousand other saints, a million other saints, who in fact radiate the love of Jesus Christ in such simplicity that it is just utterly beautiful. That's the image. At the same time, the most handsome men under the face of, the, of earth, are never going to be seen on GQ, the cover. But they are going to be people like the Apostle Paul who confessed in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, to verse 8, that there was nothing about him to impress the Corinthians because he came in, in fear and in, in tremors and in weakness. Or in history, St. Ath- Athanasius uh, a, a, actually a midget in Egypt who was given the name Contramundi as he led the, for the cause of, of orthodoxy in the Apostles' Creed. Or even just Jesus Christ, who, as it says in Isaiah chapter 53, verse 2, had no stately uh, uh, frame or majesty that we should look upon him or appearance that we should be attracted to him. And yet, he radiated the beauty of God. At some point in time, each one of us must give up worrying about what we aren't and begin to love what God has made us to be and then trust him with that. For a disciple of Jesus Christ, under God's care, enough is enough. And what God has given in enough is beautiful. So enough is enough, but even more than that I have in your outline, enough is good enough. In verse 29 he says, Do not set your hearts on what you will eat or drink. Do not worry about it, for the pagan world runs after these things, and your heavenly Father already knows what you need. But seek his kingdom, and these things shall be given to you as well. And here is the heart of the matter. Earlier in the gospel, Jesus said that there is nothing and no one who is good but God alone. And and in saying that, he is pointing the finger directly to the heavens and saying God is the one who defines what is good. Not the pagan world, not cutting-edge designers, not outre trendsetters. It is God who is the one who has the final word on goodness. So you have to ask yourself the question as you go into the world, who is setting the pace for the race that you have chosen to run for goodness? Only God knows what you really need. And as he gives, you discover that what he gives is all you really need, and it is good 
enough. Seek his kingdom, he says. Spurgeon once wrote, you mind his business and he will more than care for yours. (laughs) You mind his business and he will more than care for yours. Don't worry. And do not be afraid. In verse 32, he wraps his arms around us and sends us out beyond our place of worry and outside of our prison of fear, freed at last, and we can finally get on with life, as I have it on your outline, fearless and confident because we are his child. Look at verse 32. Do not be afraid, little flock, for your father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. Now, if the word back in verse 22 of worry means a divided mind, the word afraid here means a tortured soul. There's a difference in those words. But his command, with it, Jesus delivers from both of those. Both the divided man, mind and the tortured soul. And I love the way he does it. He does not do it by ridiculing our fear or somehow diminishing our feelings. His words are extremely gentle. He looks us at, at us and he calls us his little flock. As if he is, is walking among us... <laughs> woolly sheep as we are, and picks us up with tender care, careful not to bruise or snap any of the fragile parts of our being. He is pleased to do it. And some of you have translated in your scriptures there as, he has chosen gladly to give you the kingdom. He cares for you with a smile on his face. It pleases him, and it makes him glad. Why? Because we are his children. Man, i got to tell you, the most confident people I know, the most fearless people I know, are those who know that they are loved and that their destiny is secure. Are you that way? That's where you become fearless for life. Fearless to serve as he leads. He goes on to say, sell your possessions, give to the poor, pursue for your, uh, uh, provide purses for yourselves that will not wear out a treasure in heaven that will not be exhausted, where no thief comes near, no moth destroys. One of the byproducts of worry is selfishness because everything gets tight. When under threat, we tend to bundle up our treasures and defend them and protect them and to grip them with the same passion that a drowning man clings to a life vest. But once we realize that Christ has us in hand, we are then now freed to loosen our grip and get on to life without, without any fear. In fact, the way Jesus ends it, when he's got us in a hand, we get back into business. Verse 34, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So what are you doing with your treasures? Or better yet, what are your treasures that you're holding in hand? The word Jesus uses here for treasure in the Greek word in the thesaurus includes so much. You know the difference between a dictionary and a thesaurus. A dictionary is just kind of the definition. The thesaurus throws in all the words that, 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 that kind of expand the meaning of the term. And, and, and here, Jesus opens up a whole thesaurus with that Greek word of treasure, with an endless stream of possibilities of the things that we hold dear. Treasure here is, may not just be a matter of money. 
It could be a matter of so many other things that, that you, 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 you hold to heart, what you value most, what occupies your thoughts, what, if exposed to risk, would cause you to worry about losing. You have a treasure, and you're already lapping, wrapping your life around it. But in Jesus Christ, you have the greatest treasure of all, and it's worth giving your life to it. For the treasure that you have in a relationship with him is something that endures the test of time and eternity. And your status as a child of God through Jesus Christ is what really matters most. So set the rest aside and take hold of the gift that God has given us in Jesus Christ. That's the treasure from heaven. Put your heart to it. Let us pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, I thank you that you have chosen to speak to us in such gentle terms. As children, and being children, Lord, you as a Heavenly Father know what does plague us at heart. You know our tendencies, Lord, you know our weaknesses, and you know our strengths, but Lord, you know our potential, for you have created us. And so, Lord, draw us close to yourself, lift our eyes off of self and our sinful obsession with ourself, and lift our eyes so that we might see you and your purpose, you and your plan, you and what you have made us to be, so that, Lord, we might be able to live the lives that you've given us to live with purpose and with meaning, with simplicity, and with obedience, trusting in you. And, Lord, set all the rest of those things aside. Take the sting from our worry Take the fear from our anxiety. And Lord, give us the confidence in our life that we would walk with you in obedience to your claim in our lives through Jesus Christ, who is our Lord. And in his name we pray. Amen.